Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dr. Danya Koja. I'm an emergency physician who practices mostly in Florida. And this is Dr. Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in the Baltimore, Washington area. And today we're going to be talking about the October 2022 issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine. And if you do not know what that is, what are you waiting for? Critical Decisions is ASEP's official CME publication. Each month, we publish two lessons that cover either the bread and butter of emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge, focusing only on those critical decisions. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical procedure, critical image, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So let's start off with our first lesson of this month, Under Attack, Care for Sexual Assault Victims. Thank you to Drs. Heather Rossi and Ralph Riviello for writing this article. So, Dania, we've talked about assault and interpersonal violence before, and this is certainly a deeper dive into a specific element of it. Absolutely. And this is a common problem, unfortunately. More than 50% of women and 30% of men have experienced sexual violence themselves. And one in four women and 4% of men have experienced rape or attempted rape. And that's keeping in mind that more than half of these assaults are actually not reported. So these numbers are actually way less than reality. So this not only includes our patients, it includes our colleagues, our learners, our staff as well. And just like any painful topic, we tend to avoid talking about it and focus on like drier things. But this is important to understand and know how to take care of. What are the dynamics of sexual violence? Well, the article clears a couple of common myths that are related to sexual violence. Usually, it's not the story of a random stranger with a weapon who attacks a young woman for sexual gratification. Reality is that less than 15% of perpetrators are unknown to the victim, and the majority of assaults do not actually involve a weapon. It's usually a mean to exert power more than anything else, and the majority of perpetrators are men, and 14% of the total victims are also men. Many of these events don't involve non-genital physical injuries, more so in women than men, and grossly visualized anogenital injuries are only present in around 5%. Wow, these are very sobering statistics. So let's start with clarifying the alphabet soup of team members who may be available to help us care for our patients. What's a SANE? So a SANE is a sexual assault nurse examiner. And those are nurses who are specialized in caring for and collecting evidence from patients who are sexually assaulted, which usually happens within five to seven days of the incident. These nurse examiners are also well-versed in community resources and are able to help our patients. A SART is a sexual assault response team which is a patient-focused, multidisciplinary, multi-agency approach because our patients need more than just medical care and post-exposure prophylaxis. These teams include medical personnel at the hospital, legal support, and social services. And a lot of these details are in table one. And the idea is to expedite care and make this very painful process a little smoother for people. Got it. That makes sense. What about our role specifically in this process? Just like all patients, caring for serious injuries or other concomitant to illnesses always takes precedence over things like evidence collection. Now, if you have a SANE in your ED, then your role is just to perform a medical screening exam to identify an emergent medical condition. Specifically, you got to ask questions about the injuries, the areas of pain and bleeding, whether strangulation occurred, as well as SI and HI, which are relatively common. Strangulation itself is quite common, and it's easily missed because people don't volunteer this information, which is why we should specifically ask, were you choked or strangled? 
After that, the SANE takes over. What if your ED does not have a SANE? Then the forensic evidence collection, including the forensic history, is done by us. Depending on the areas of physical contact or penetration and the time lapse since, which the article details, we may be able to perform that collection. The forensic history needs to be collected as well. Details such as what happened during the assault, after the assault, such as bathing or showering, and understanding when the last consensual sexual activity was with its relevant details. The physical examination of the body in the anogenital area is a little different from how we usually do it. The examination needs to be from head to toe, and of course we need to look for injuries which we know how to do, but it also involves taking photographs and using an alternate light source to look for biological agents, such as like secretions. Potential evidence is then packaged using the two-swap technique. As for the anogenital exam, there's a lot of focus on the visual inspection, which is really different from our usual practice for our other purposes. The areas are photographed, an alternate light source is used, and toledine blue dye is used as well. The article details the steps in this which needs to be done because it's a very specific method. This is very informative, especially for those of us who trained at sites where we had a scene available. The article definitely details many of these concepts and has many pearls, so definitely worth reviewing all of that. Any other history and physical exam pearls? Remember that one to two thirds of assaults are facilitated by alcohol and drugs. Alcohol is the most common, and drugs are used in maybe around 5%, but we're not really sure of this number. Drugs commonly used for what they call date rape drugs are flunitrazepam, MDMA, ketamine, and GHB. This should be suspected in patients who are coming in with amnesia, intoxication out of proportion to the reportedly consumed alcohol, severe nausea and vomiting, impaired motor skills, and blood and urine samples should be collected as soon as possible and sent to forensic labs, not our in-hospital lab. Very good point. Okay, now that we have performed a thorough history and physical exam, any pearls about the documentation? Body maps and photographs, which are built into most electronic medical records, are quite helpful because they eliminate any vagueness or confusion. Using a standardized documentation form can make this easier as well so that we don't forget important elements. Documenting in the patient's own words can be quite impactful, and be careful of using words like alleged or rule out, and instead use things like reported or, you know, just sexual assault. Document the injuries that you see, and that can be also used as your diagnosis. Got it. Now, shifting gears to another important element, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. What testing do we need to conduct? For fear of stating the obvious, testing immediately after the assault will not reveal any STIs that were acquired during the assault. So if the patient is getting prophylactic treatment, then it's really not necessary to do it then. If the patient declines prophylactic testing, then you may want to consider that. You would test for things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas in the vagina, and then as well serum testing for things like syphilis, HIV, and hepatitis B. Makes sense. What about prophylactic treatment? So the CDC recommends empiric treatment for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. Recommending vaccines for hepatitis B and HPV should be considered as well, especially in patients, of course, who are not vaccinated. Now, the one that can get really tricky is choosing to do non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, or NPEP, for HIV, because the precise data is unknown. Now, of course, if the assailant is known to be HIV negative, then there's no need. That just can completely be avoided. Unfortunately, that piece of information is usually not known. Now, we know that there are some factors that are associated with a possibly high risk of transmission, such as multiple assailants, genital injury or trauma, and vaginal or anal penetration. 
and that requires shared decision-making with the patient. Now, NPAP should be started within 72 hours and continued for 28 days for it to actually work. So from a logistical standpoint, you need to either give the patient a starter pack in the emergency department with a close follow-up with a specialist, or just give them the whole prescription for 28 days from the ED. Unfortunately, not enough people opt for NPAP. Another thing to think of is postcoital contraception in women of reproductive age following a negative pregnancy test in your ED. I see. What about follow-up information? What do patients need? As we alluded to before, the patients have very complex needs after an event like this. From a medical standpoint, they do need repeat STI testing and they need follow-up for any injuries. If they were appropriate for and have chosen to take the HIV NPAP, then they need a specialist follow-up and somebody who's specifically experienced in that. They also need a referral to a rape crisis or victim advocacy center to help them with their other needs as well. Got it. Okay, now what about legal considerations? Remember that each jurisdiction is different, so you really need to know your local laws. Some places actually require that all sexual assaults must be reported to law enforcement, but patients may remain anonymous if they want to. Remember that consent must be obtained prior to the sexual assault exam and evidence collection. And sometimes patients cannot give consent, and it's a tough balance between needing to collect as soon as possible and not having that consent. Each department should have a very clear written policy, and that policy must be followed. What some places do is collect the evidence as anonymous to try to preserve the integrity of that, and then reporting it when the patient or the family member can give consent, so keeping it as anonymous until then. I see. Any special considerations for different populations? Keep in mind that male victims are way less likely to report sexual assault, and they're actually more likely to have multiple assailants, which increases the risk for HIV. Older adults can be victims of sexual assault as well, and reporting that may actually be mandatory in your jurisdiction. Patients with mental and physical disabilities are at high risk as well, and they may have difficulty sharing that with you or reporting it. So keep that in mind. Well, thank you, Dania, for taking us through this very important lesson. And there are so many pearls packed in this lesson that I think all of us should review, especially if you work at a site that don't have all the resources, such as a SANE, a SART, et cetera, uh, to help with this. In terms of our role in the ED, we obviously want to perform a medical screening exam to identify any emergent medical conditions. And then, of course, deal with the actual sexual assault details, and then importantly, to ask about whether or not the patient may have been choked or strangled, since that may not be very freely offered by the victims. If you are involved in doing the forensic evidence collection, obviously there are a lot of resources to help with that, but the key is that it's not exactly the same as our physical exam. And we want to make sure we do a lot of visual inspection, obviously documentation with photography, as well as documentation in our electronic medical records that are using the patient's words uh, and simply describing what you see. Another key element that we play in the care of these patients is post-exposure prophylaxis. Immediate testing for STIs is not generally necessary. It's really follow-up testing. And then another key element is the prophylactic treatment, which the CDC recommends impaired treatment for gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, consideration of hep B, HPV vaccination, as well as HIV and PEP if it is a high-risk situation after shared decision-making. 
So definitely review this article. Thank you, Wendy, for this great summary. And thank you to our authors for taking the time to write this article. It's definitely something that we can get better at and be able to help our patients better. So switching gears to a rare disease in small kids, our clinical pediatrics is a case of Moya Moya disease-induced stroke. So if the name is not scary enough, then maybe you should read the case. It's a case of a five-year-old boy who woke up with a focal motor seizure and aphasia. So somebody gave him lorazepam, loaded him with Keppra or Levetiracetam, which resolved the seizures, which was fantastic. But then the CT showed a large right MCA hypodensity, which was concerning for an infarct. And the CTA showed multifocal stenoses and occlusions of both internal carotid arteries. Moya Moya disease, which is a non-inflammatory progressive arteriopathy, and these are characterized by the severe stenosis of intracranial vessels, like we heard about in this case. And what happens with these stenotic vessels is you have compensatory collateral circulation that forms, and all this collateral circulation gives that classic puff of smoke appearance on an angiogram. There's actually a really good diagram and an example of the angiogram in this article that you can look at. So unfortunately, these collateral circulation vessels are fragile and they can lead to hemorrhage, which is commonly how adult cases of Moya Moya present. Uh, in pediatric cases, though, these patients typically present with cerebral ischemia, which can be provoked by maneuvers that cause hypocapnia. So with straining or hyperventilation because those cause a cerebral vasoconstriction and decrease cerebral perfusion. So the diagnosis usually happens when we are doing a workup for the etiology of a stroke or a hemorrhage. And when we find that, what are we supposed to do other than freak out? Yes, agreed. I think freaking out and involvement of your specialist, whether it's neurologist, neurosurgery, uh, colleagues uh, will be part of the care of these patients. Care for the stroke or the intracranial hemorrhage components are pretty similar to how we take care of these other patients who don't have Moya Moya disease. Specifically for Moya Moya, there's no medical treatment that reverses or prevents the progression of the disease, but some of these patients may be candidates for surgical revascularization. So this can be actually direct external carotid artery to internal carotid artery bypass or indirect bypasses where it's really cool where they take the superficial temporal artery and attach it to the dura or the temporalis muscle and put it on top of your cerebral cortex, which allows you know the formation of new collaterals. Well, it sounds like a fantastic plan that somebody else can help fix in these patients. So moving on to hopefully less scary diseases or maybe just as scary diseases that infarct, our critical EKG this month is about acute posterior myocardial infarction. And this is a great reminder that interoceptal SC depressions can actually be from a reciprocal change from an inferior MI or that the person is having an acute posterior MI. So if you have these shallow downsloping SC depressions, then they're possibly reciprocal. If they're horizontal and depressed for like more than two millimeters, then at that point, maybe you want to do that posterior EKG. And another tip off is those large R waves. Yes, definitely. These are good reminders and there are lots more findings in this month's ECG. Now, if 
this infarct actually progresses to a cardiac arrest, then the review this month can help us. Today we are reviewing the article by Lascaru et al. that was published in New England Journal in 2019 that was entitled Targeted Temperature Management for Cardiac Arrest with Non-Chalkable Rhythm. There has definitely been a lot of discussion about targeted temperature management in cardiac arrest with several recently published landmark studies. So this was the Hyperion trial, which was a randomized control trial that looked at hypothermia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as well as in-hospital cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythms, and this was conducted in France. These patients were either cooled to 33 degrees for 24 hours before rewarming, or they were kept normothermic at 37 degrees for 48 hours, and ultimately their 90-day outcome was followed. All right, so what did they find? Drum roll, please. Da, da, da. No, wait, that's not a drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, not as dramatic, but... I hope we're better at cooling people than a drum roll. <laughs> that's right. Well, so this particular study found that patients who were cooled to 33 degrees had more favorable neurological outcomes compared to the normothermia group. And there were no differences in secondary outcomes such as mortality, ICU length of stay, mechanical ventilation days. I think important finding or takeaway from this study was that I, prior to this, there was some discussion or believers that maybe targeted temperature management was not as applicable or useful in non-shockable rhythms since a number of the landmark studies only looked at shockable rhythms. But I think commonly we say in neurocritical care is the brain doesn't care how the cardiac arrest happened. Lack of cerebral perfusion is lack of cerebral perfusion. <laughs> so um, obviously nuances to that. But I think targeted temperature management is re important regardless of the initial rhythm of the arrest. You know, I'm not a neurointensivist, but it, it does sound like the brain won't really care that much about the details. So any limitations or criticism for this paper, though? Sure, definitely. So one commonly cited thing is that this study had a low fragility index, which means that, you know, if the outcome changed for just a few of these patients, it would be enough to change the overall, you know, outcome of the study. So while the study included almost 600 patients, an even bigger sample size would have definitely improved its validity. Some other criticism about the study itself and the different groups involved was that there was an overall difference in the duration of temperature management between the two groups, and that resulted in some of the patients being febrile after their controlled temperature period. Definitely a good article to review. Now, shifting gears to traumatic injuries, our critical image this month is of a pregnant trauma patient. And this is a case of a woman who's coming in at 36 plus gestation who had a head-on MVC with significant damage and airbag deployment. When she shows up, her abdomen is rigid, but she doesn't have any vaginal bleeding. There's no fluid grossly noted. Her fast is negative and the fetal heart rate is fine. It's 158. Indeed. So we had talked a little bit about, you know, the choice of imaging in pregnancy in our July issue of Critical Decisions and the podcast. So this month's critical image talks a little bit more in detail about CT imaging in the pregnant trauma patient. 
it's a good reminder that the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology states that if a CT is necessary or more readily available for the diagnosis in question, it should not be withheld from a pregnant patient. And remember that a CT abdomen pelvis gives about 20 milligray of radiation and doses that are below 50 milligray are not associated with increased risk of fetal loss or anomaly. Got it. So that relatively lower radiation than kind of our threshold is definitely worth it if the diagnosis we're worried about is placental abruption, because 20 to 60% of cases are associated with fetal morbidity or mortality and with like significant maternal risks such as hemorrhage and DIC. So kind of looking at both sides of that, the CT totally makes sense. Now, the ultrasound is routinely used, but the sensitivity can be quite low sometimes, as low as 24%. Now, if it's positive, that's quite specific, in the upwards of like 92 to 96%. Now, CTs can also be falsely negative, especially if the radiologist is not trained, or if we don't cue them to look for that abruption. There's also, of course, there's a false positive, because the placenta doesn't look the same way the entire pregnancy, and it can kind of look a little weird and people would think it's a placental abruption, especially since we don't tend to look at a lot of placenti, placentas, placenti, mm-hmm. whatever the plural is of placenta <laughs> on CTs. <laughs> very true. Yes. Now there are findings that are very specific for abruption. There are like areas of hypoenhancement if they're near or like more than 50% of a cross section of the placenta, then that's probably an abruption. The article does have examples of normal and abnormal CTs to take a look at and look at hopefully way more than the placentas you'll ever see on a CT in real life. Very true and good images to look at. This is a great eye-opener case as always. In keeping up with trauma, our critical case in orthopedics and trauma this month is... Well, it's a case of a woman with bilateral hip replacements who unfortunately fell and presented with severe hip pain that was in external rotation. And she also had some peroneal and tibial nerve distribution hyperesthesia. You get an x-ray and you found that she has an anterior superior prosthetic hip dislocation. I heard prosthetic dislocation and my mind stopped because one, they suck, and two, they're actually quite common. They're more common than native hip dislocations And they're actually the most frequent complication of a total hip replacement. Apparently up to 10% of primary replacement are gonna pop out and like 30% of revisions. Usually it happens within six weeks of surgery and around a third are recurrent. They just keep popping out. The risk factors include like an age of over 70, female, as we said, revisions, and if the surgical approach was posterior lateral. Yeah, definitely. It also occurs even with just low energy mechanisms of injury. So a common question that comes up is, should these be reduced by emergency physicians or orthopedics? And a study comparing reductions by EPs and ortho found no difference in successful reductions or complications, although reductions done by emergency physicians certainly had shorter ED length of stays. In terms of when should ortho be consulted if the patient has a dislocation within six weeks of surgery, if the patient had some reconstruction of the acetabulum, if there is a periprosthetic fracture, or if there are some specialized implants, those are cases where you may not want to do the reduction yourself. 
If you do reduce the hip successfully, then these patients will definitely need orthopedic follow-up and they're gonna need very clear discharge instructions because you don't want them to bend the hip more than 90 degrees. You don't want them to cross their legs, internally rotate their leg. They should really use an abduction pillow. And then you can even consider telling them to have weight-bearing restrictions where they only do toe-touch weight-bearing. So get ortho involved because they're going to need a lot of instructions and follow-up. And copy and paste these instructions into their instructions. Now, keeping up with broken bones, our critical procedure this month is traction splinting of a mid-shaft femur fracture. Now, traction splinting is something that's commonly used in military and pre-hospital settings. The idea is to immobilize the fracture and decrease the pain, little more than just simple good old splinting, especially when it's a big bone like the femur. Now, it's important to measure and prepare the traction splint itself before its application, depending on the type you're working with. You may apply manual traction to reduce the fracture and improve alignment before the application itself. And of course, the golden pearl. Always check the neurovascular status before and after your procedure. That's right. So for our second lesson of this issue, shifting gears, selecting appropriate critical care transport. Thank you to Drs. Ani Aydin, Christy Fritz, Luke Duncan, and Jason Cohen for writing this article. You know, Wendy, I think we're really great at caring for critically ill patients in our EDs, but then I don't think we really consider the details surrounding the critical care transport of these patients to decrease the risk of decompensation and getting them to that higher level of care. So when we're trying to choose a transport mode in a team, what are the things that we should think of? The authors for this lesson has a great table that outlines the things that we should consider in choosing a mode of transportation and a transport team. So one thing that we often think about is, is the condition time sensitive? Are you dealing with a STEMI, a stroke, a traumatically injured patient? How much management is needed during the transport itself? And that plays a role in terms of the personnel, the team structure, and their scope of practice. If you need any special equipment during the transport, such as a patient who is intubated and ventilated, or if they have a cardiac assist device, if they have an ICP monitor. If you actually need a deployment of a specialty team of some sort, such as neonatal teams or ECMO teams or high-risk OB teams. I think a common thing we think about is, unfortunately, the non-modifiable factors, which is whether the availability of transport teams, the distance, as well as practicalities like landing zones for you know, air medical transport teams. Great, Pearls. So something that we're familiar with a little bit is the different levels of training of the EMS personnel, such as like EMT and paramedics that make up our BLS and ALS teams. Now, what happens if your patient needs even more than that? They need a higher level of care than that that can be provided by an ALS team with paramedics. This is where your critical care transport team comes in because these teams are commonly composed of paramedics and nurses. And, but depending on agencies and regions. Potentially, they could even include physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, or even respiratory therapists. The medical director of each critical care transport team establishes this crew configuration and their treatment protocol. And then, as I already kind of alluded to, there are these specialty transport teams that may include specialists like NICU, NPs or fellows, intensivists, cardiac surgeons, or ECMO perfusionists. 
wow, quite a lot of people on this critical care transport team. So what happens if there is a long delay for one of these special teams, like severe inclement weather? What are we supposed to do? I think this is a tough situation. Every now and then it comes up, or at least we maybe think through these difficult scenarios. In this case, as the sending emergency physician, you have to decide the risk benefit of either waiting for the transport team to come or sending the patient with a lower level of care just to get them to their ultimate destination faster. The other option is to essentially form an ad hoc team by maybe sending some of your hospital staff along with what's an available transport team to augment the capabilities of care during the transport. So this might mean sending your ED nurse along with, uh, let's say, BLS or ALS team, or utilizing hospital nurse, RT, and PPA physician. Obviously, this is not a decision to be made lightly because it affects your ED and hospital staffing. But the other aspect is the fact that these clinicians are not generally familiar with the the operations as a transport team and may not have ever worked with these transport team members before. So you may not be setting them up to practice in the most optimal way. That's a great part that reminds us that it's not just clinical experience in general that matters, but also functioning as part of the transport team and transporting patients with its own nuances and special considerations. So this brings us actually to a question of like, whose responsibility is it to do what? When we're thinking of like the sending and receiving physicians. Yeah, this is definitely a common question. So MTALA designates that the sending physician is responsible for choosing, you know, the most appropriate level of care and the mode of transport based on your patient's clinical condition and their needs. Now, the accepting physician can always provide consultation and help advise the sending physician and the transport teams on how to stabilize and care for the patient during transport. But again, the ultimate decision on choosing, you know, the type of team and mode of transport still is by the sending physician. Another thing to pay attention to, although I hope it doesn't come up often, is that the receiving hospital can't make their acceptance of this transfer contingent on use of their own critical care transport team. Obviously, we don't want that whole quid pro quo situation. Great, Pearl. Any other considerations? I think a situation that we often encounter is that we have a patient who's critically ill or has a time-sensitive disease, and we want to get the patient transferred to their higher level of care as soon as possible. And oftentimes, we consider the use of air medical transport, but because of weather limitations, we're not able to utilize that. Now, we don't want to necessarily call multiple air medical transport agencies which is a concept known as weather shopping. If one has already declined the transport due to dangerous weather conditions, because this may you know, encourage flying in dangerous conditions and has been linked to adverse events. So in general, if one air medical transport group cannot fly due to weather, others will probably not be able to. Obviously there's caveats depending on where the bad weather really is or if you have an air medical group that actually uses instrument flight rules, which is unfortunately very uncommon in the US. So if weather doesn't allow for air medical transport, probably just need to start planned for ground transport of some sort. Well, thank you, Wendy, for reviewing this article. There are such great pearls about something that a lot of us do quite often if we're practicing in a community hospital. 
Critical care transport is something that we need to know how to do quite well. We need to understand how much management the patient needs en route and if there are special equipments that are needed and if a specialty team needs to be there like neonatal or ECMO or high-risk OB. There's also some things that are you know, non-modifiable such as the weather and the distance. Sometimes a BLS transport, ALS transport can be fine, but sometimes even an ALS is not enough and that's when a critical care transport team needs to be deployed. That can include physicians, NPs, RTs, PAs, nurses, and that may be necessary depending on the needs of the patient. Now, something that we need to remember is that if the critical care transport team is not available, maybe, just a big fat maybe, you can actually send your hospital's nurse, RT, NP, PA, or physician, but just because they have the credentialing doesn't mean that they are going to function well in that environment because they may be unfamiliar with the operation as a transport team. Remember that the physician who is sending the patient is the one who's responsible for choosing the appropriate level of care and mode of transport, according to MTALA, and that the accepting physician may advise on how that needs to be done. And finally, if inclement weather is preventing safe air transport, don't do weather shopping because that can encourage people to fly in unsafe conditions. That's right. Thank you, Dania. For our drug box this month, it is on Tecoviramat, which is an antiviral to treat monkeypox. This drug was initially approved to treat smallpox, but obviously expanded access as an investigational drug with the recent monkeypox. If you do need to administer it, you can request it through your health department or the CDC Emergency Operations Center. It can be given as IV or PO forms for 14 days, but really the duration of treatment depends on the patient's disease progression and their clinical condition. And hypersensitivity reaction is a possibility. Well, I guess it's time that we've reviewed something about monkeypox. And moving on to the tox box this month, dinitrophenol overdose. Well, the dinitrophenol is a weight loss agent that's been banned by the FDA, but we have the internet. So it's still purchased online, mainly by bodybuilders. And the idea is that it induces a hypermetabolic state due to uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, which doesn't sound like a thing that you'd want to do if you want to, you know, build your body and not, you know, die. So what happens is that after ingestion, inhalation, or like dermal absorption, it can cause its effects. So even small doses like one to three milligrams per kilo can actually cause toxicity. Things that come from uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation happens like hyperthermia, tachycardia, acidosis, renal failure, rhabdo, jaundice, seizures, horrible things. All the bad things. Totally bad things. Now the treatment is supportive care with benzos, which are always our friends, fluids, cooling, and there are some case reports of using dantrolene, which is kind of similar to other cases of the really bad hyperthermia. Now, if the patient's asymptomatic, like 10 to 12 hours after the ingestion, you can medically clear them as long as you take away their medications and then like flush it down the toilet or don't flush it down the toilet. Just don't let them ingest it anymore. Yeah, I don't want the fish to have uncoupled oxidative phosphorylation. Uncoupling, uncoupling. It's about the uncoupling of the oxidative phosphorylation. Yeah. So thank you, Andy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I have learned a lot, as always. Our dear listeners, we hope you have enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this. We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication and our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. 
connect with us on Twitter and share with us your thoughts and your cases. My Twitter handle is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month, bye-bye.